that building full of fright. I grant that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall, where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show, and I must confess to you, there were many there I knew. Hello, this is The Dispatchist, a friendly conversation about eternal damnation. I'm Jacob. And I'm Victoria. I'm Jamin. Dante news this week. That is a rare item because that is some 700-year-old stuff there. There is a new-ish, 11-years-old-ish, but recently out of development hell, animated version of the Inferno. And I have to say, it looks very bad. So bad. <laughs> it's Italian. And one of the high points of it is it's recorded in a fairly old dialect of Italian. So like a rustic, primitive, more what Dante would have sounded like voice. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no. Okay, now I have to actually look at this thing. No, 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 no. <laughs> Jamie was trying to avoid it. I, I don't think you do. So there's two parts to this. There's a, I guess, hour and a half, like feature length documentary which took 12 years to make, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it's a book uh, that's been sitting on a shelf for 700 years or so. And to be fair, no one has actually read that book in the last 150. Everybody's read the first 30 pages. I'll give you 30 lines. Yeah. And I read the version that was translated by Mr. Cliff Note. I was um, going to say, like, I think that's, that's my familiarity with yeah, it. Yeah. You know, given the topic of our podcast, we are going to have to overcome that hurdle together. Damn. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, that's our, our literary commitment to torture. Way to go. Great. <laughs> so anyway, there's two parts. There's the documentary, which is, um, it's got a bunch of Italian actors, a bunch of uh, academics and things like that. And I saw the trailer of it. It was filled with bizarre jump cuts, art that was kind of, it's much better than what I could do, but that's an extremely low bar. It feels like high-end high school art with mm. the animation stylings of kind of an early Terry Gilliam, maybe. And that, Whoa, that okay. animatic style of like flash animation, cut and paste and slow, awkward movement and things like that in two dimensions. Oh my God. That's bad. You're making it sound better and better. Well, the scene with Cerebus, like ripping apart three people with his three heads, all of which were operating on a two-dimensional plane of reality, was very strange. So the entire animated film is on YouTube now. Don't, just don't. Doc, how long is it? 40 minutes, 30 minutes. It's not too long. Maybe 30 minutes. Okay. And I do think it's going to like literalize some stuff, which could be useful. But like horror movies, you don't always show. Sometimes it's better to tell. And I think that Dante told and didn't show. And this guy's showing and it's not working because like three-headed Satan, halfway buried in ice, chewing innocently on Judas is a better mental image than in the physical world. Mm. Maybe. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm. That was some strange noise. But the documentary... It's, it's, about, it's about Dante, about Dante's books, about his writing and his period and things like that. So contextualization is good. But also, the author has written a thesis, and he's very excited about this thesis, called Dante Decoded. It's about, oh yes, face, face plant. It's about hell possibly tied into hell being in a real location in the hollow earth. He mentions the Anunnaki in a favorable light. So I'm dimly excited about this. So in his own kind of blurb of his thesis review, I guess, it is well known that Dante used many allegories in his divine comedy. Many people take Dante's words literally, but for Boris, the author, 
Everything must make sense or he'll keep scratching his head until they do. Kind of like Merlin in the movie. I know. Merlin does scratch his head a fair bit. Uh, For instance, when Dante mentioned towers with fires on top, that's what most people visualize. But for worse, the towers didn't make sense because someone must continually be putting wood on them for them to burn that way in hell forever. So he thought they must be volcanoes to solve the mystery of keeping the fire alive. Tombs in hell? Who made them? Rivers of blood? Who is blood? Did Boris not have propane? Because you just (laughs) run a pipe to the top. And or propane accessories? Yeah. I, and whose blood is a question I ask myself every single day. Whose blood? <laughs> wake, up, wake up in the morning. That's whose blood? Come on. It's interesting because Dante's big thing was allegorizing hell in a way that made it fantastic and and accessible, but less real. And so he's seems frustrated by the allegories and wants to make it more real and less fantastic, which I don't know. Yeah. Poor Boris. Well... <laughs> <laughs> the reviews, the reviews of these things are just fan, are gushing, gushing, gushing reviews. Best ever puts modern animation and computer games to shame, which I think is somewhat inaccurate. I don't know. I did track down, I like bunny trailed down one of the reviewers accounts and found out that she'd left a review of some death pool laptop stickers with the comment <laughs> works great on palmetto bugs in the summer. <laughs> 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 so I, I doubt, I doubt her sincerity. <laughs> Well, I'm intrigued. If we have to read the Inferno, by golly, this is this is a good start. It'll be a good companion to it to make it mm-hmm. less or more insufferable. I don't know. Mm-hmm. How are we? How are we going to be able to prove to each other that we've done this? It's like okay, pop quiz time. VR chat. Everybody gets an avatar, and I project it onto the screen of my VR chat clubhouse. Okay. I really wish I hadn't asked. Now, <laughs> I had a, I had a plan. Dang it. I've got a cute little clubhouse <laughs> and a cute little coyote avatar to show off. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. That's can, exciting. Can my coyote avatar have, like, tire marks on the back? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so did anybody bring anything tonight? Yes. Actually, I have two drinks tonight. Ooh. I have one we'll for the adults. Them. One for the adults and one for the kids because uh, we're all about child labor tonight. And so those little kiddos need something to knock back after a hard day at Santa's factory. So the adults, uh, to combat the cocktail of remembrance, I have brought a mind eraser. And have y'all had a mind eraser before? Um, Metaphorically, perhaps. (laughs) How would we know? (laughs) Good question. Ah, So it's delicious. It's just vodka, coffee, liqueur, and club soda. Very simple. That does sound nice. Yeah. It's like an alcoholic egg, egg cream. Yes, exactly. And so for the kiddos, it's an advent calendar called It's a Schnapps World After All. Aww. And so it's, it's adorable because every single day there's a tiny bottle of schnapps and they're all flavored with ethnic stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's for the kids? That's for the kiddos. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we're trying something new tonight. Last week we went out, we had uh, wings. And as usual, you get an order of fried pickles. Who doesn't love fried pickles? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what if we switched things around and made pickled fries? So oh. I started with crinkle cut, good golden fry, and they've been soaking in brine for three weeks. So let's crack this jar and uh, should be delicious. I mean, everything in it started good. Pickled fries. <laughs> Having read Hirvathes' manuscript on science and cooking, I'm not sure I agree with this approach, but we should try it. <laughs> Was that Hervé Villages or who was it? Hervé? No, Hervé Thies. <laughs> He's a French gastronomist, not a little person. 
Well, I brought a movie. Oh, no. Yes. So tonight we've got the 1959 G. Gordon Murray storybook classic Santa Claus. I think it's, is it K. Gordon? G. Gordon Liddy? uh, G. Gordon Liddy. (laughs) um, I've done G. Gordon Liddy, K. Gordon (laughs) Ramsey. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's, is it K. Gordon Ramsey? Uh, It's uh, K. Gordon Murray. Okay. <laughs> G. Gordon <Lee>. So close. <laughs> anyway, this guy made quite a career out of translating Spanish movies into English, a lot of storybook stuff and fantasy and things like that. And uh, this is probably one of his better known films. Not the same as his most watchable film, I suspect. Anyway, it's, it's here. It's for us. And uh, I think we should start. Okay. Okay. Here we go. The first 12 minutes of the movie establish that we are not in Peoria. The credits play in a fun, Old English-inspired presentation font with an orchestral version of Jingle Bells. Then we cut to a long shot of Santa's workshop deep in space. Big Red is doing some holiday decorating and practicing his ho-ho-ho. Then he goes to an old-fashioned organ and starts playing his way through a deeply discounted version of It's a Small World. And if that wasn't weird enough, there's a cut to, well, hell. A dozen devils cavort on the screen until Lucifer himself shoos them off to explain the film's main plot. Well, at least the most interesting subplot, I'm, I'm not really sure. Pitch the devil is going to defeat Santa Claus and take over as king of the world. You got all that? Gold stars all around. I'd say we're going to press play now, but I've got a pointless aside about the credits themselves first. But get used to false starts and awkward cuts, they're on the menu tonight. Before we really crack into this piece of cinematic fluff, I need to interrogate the credits. I feel they have a few things to answer for. If you're following along with us, which is impossible because we are all over the map tonight, you'll be watching the K. Gordon Murray cut of Santa Claus. One version, the American English version, simply leaves the cast out entirely. There, that was simple. The other takes a more Jungian approach. The parts fall like cards for the major arcana. The poor girl, the rich boy, the devil. There's also Santa Claus and Merlin but just because they have names doesn't make them real people. If you come to the Temple of Santa Claus looking for real people, this may not be the right film for you. You're playing with archetypes here. This isn't Lupita, a poor girl. She is the poor girl, played by Lupita. Specifically Lupita Quesedas. And not having seen the Spanish original, I wonder if the child was named at all. Jumping between the Spanish and English version, the actress is subsumed by her role. Lupita debuts as the poor girl. In translation, the poor girl takes the name Lupita, and this major character, the moral compass of the film, is not credited. I started to track down information on the cast on IMDb and Wikipedia, but got distracted trying to make a techno version of My Dolly Named Sue, Lupita's big breakout musical number. So I really only got as far as the main child actors, and this is not a happy story. Lupita, her career was over by 1960. Antonia Diaz-Conde... Uh, the tousle-haired, sad little rich boy. He had a role in 1961. And Pedro. Poor Pedro, who had this great can-do attitude as the single most competent person in the entire North Pole office. His actor, Cesario Quesedas, might be her brother, actually, played that part as long as he could, that, that kind of little boy with attitude. But he started to crash in the 60s in a downward spiral, first with lousy parts and then armed robbery, and now he's in jail for sexual abuse. Looking at these three children, I can really take or leave little Billy Fontelroy, but Lupita and Pedro carried the film for me. With 50 years between us and the entire world collection of film trivia at my fingers, 
is kind of painful. It's easier to see them as tarot cards, archetypes tossed onto the table in a chaotic spread, and then stuffed into a box. And that may be why the American version didn't even bother crediting them. Maybe K. Gordon Murray was just more comfortable with archetypes instead of humans. A little later, in 1959, Lupita and Pedro were both in a film together. It was called El Sordo. I'm having a bit of lost in translation on this one. I think that name means something like the silent or the mute. And that's kind of what two of the three became. The third became a felon, so let's just not go there. And yet, and yet this movie was not an insignificant little blip. It was very popular, with a number of theatrical releases over two decades, an international film festival award, and a spot on the television holiday film rotation. It's got a sort of ironic immortality as a pretty well-loved mystery science theater slash rift tracks gem. And 50 years later, it's cinematic trivia, but for a good 20 years, it was kind of a classic. Lupita outcratchets Cratchit. She's more sincere and less cloying than Tiny Tim, and her world is really a lot darker. Tiny Tim gets the medicine he needs and a big roast goose, and his entire family is set up for years. Lupita gets a doll. And it is entirely right and correct to say, And? Can you eat a doll? Is this the entire miracle? Her entire story cycle and her identity in the film, and perhaps the only real power in this film, and it is not an easy film to watch. I... That is true. It is very challenging to watch six times. Her role is to let her mother see a glimpse of God. So hold on to that and start the credits. So I have I have two interesting things about the credits. Uh-huh. Number one, do you know what the nickname of the guy who played Pitch was? And how he's often credited no. in quote that's part of his name. Trotsky. Yes. I saw that. I wasn't sure what to make of it. I maybe the beard makes him look kind of Russian. Was he killed with a tack hammer? Oh I was gonna say his dancing skills, but um <laughs> True. Yeah, that would be a good Russian dancer. Yeah. For a while I wanted to have a band called uh, Trotsky Tr- Trotsky Tack Hammer. <laughs> be like kind of a Mannheim steamroller situation. <laughs> So thing two about the credits. Thing two about the credits is that all of the toys came from Sears. They must be so proud for that product placement. (laughs) They're credited right there. I was wondering what that said because my Spanish is quite rusty. It's it's the toys were provided by Sears Roebuck. And initially I thought like, oh, let's explore the evil side of Sears. Away up in the heavens, far out in space, in a beautiful golden crystal palace right above the North Pole, lives a kind and jolly old gentleman, Santa Claus, also known as St. Nicholas, the best friend of boys and girls everywhere. But let's move in for a closer look. Come along. So we're floating in space. I do not know what kind of creature this Santa Claus is. Uh, I have a theory that he's God, and I'm going to go back to it several times. There's three castles. Who lives in yes. the other two? He actually has thousands of them. What? Yeah, you really have to read these Santa Claus... Ex- oh, look, this is the part where he creates an angel. Uh, you really have to read the Santa Claus extended mythology. Santa's jiggliest angel. Yeah. But he's happy. He's a very happy Santa Claus. He laughs a lot forever. Maybe Jesus is hilarious. Really? I didn't get a good shot of him. So... 
one thing that's interesting about the opening scene is Santa's wearing like this bright red outfit and it makes him the only thing in the world. It's like Scarlet Letter almost. He seems so central in this. I, I, I believe he's God. Well, the movie is called Santa Claus. Yes. So <laughs> if we're looking for a central figure... He is the title character. Hang on, guys, guys. Enough goofing around with like the nativity scene. I have to get to work right now. <laughs> I'm going to sit at the organ. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> right. And he's going to sing bad romance while he's doing it. Yeah, so Santa is playing the songs of the world for a huge slave labor force. We open with Africa and there's like immediately there's children dancing around in little little loincloths and there's a human skull in the background. It really makes me upset. <laughs> Three minutes very... and 16 seconds in, cultural appropriation, racism, and cringe. Well, also in the <laughs> depraved state of humanity. Like, and this small is what... children. Well, he, Santa's first view of humanity is this image of death. Is that what he thinks about us? Oh, I never thought of that as a reflection of us. Well, I mean, it's kind that of... That changes everything. <laughs> it's kind of true. We as a species are kind of terrible. Yeah. Oh, China. China is bad. Africa's way worse than China. Right. But in China, this little boy is like endlessly beating this dog who's upside down. Um, I was wondering about that. It's like a hellish torture. I mean, just lost in a loop. This may be purgatory. I, I'm uh, not sure. I've lived in China. This is perfectly normal. Oh, okay. <laughs> Time to beat the upside down dog. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's what Thursdays are for. So anyway, why Santa has all these kids, I think they're helping him by helping normalize him to humanity. Like this is oh. his tenuous connection to the world. Uh, no? Uh, I don't know if this is spoilers or not, but he gets to go to Earth once a year, and none of these children have been there. So are they really normalizing him, or is... Well, he's around these kids all year, making them dance. I was wondering about, like, where the kids came from, if they were... How, who, are they, like, orcs? <laughs> Just like orcs. <laughs> <laughs> Bad. I think orcs sing better. Yeah. I, Can somebody explain the Orient to me? It's um, in the East. Orient in this one, I think the Spanish global view, because it's Mexican. I think this is the Middle East. They say, they say Orient, Middle East, right? China is Far East. This is the Orient. Does gotcha. That, that, I mean, and that's just, this is conjecture on my part, but having been in so many cultures where you're like, I don't understand your culture's view of the world, it's different. Santa's face, as he forces these children to dance, is kind of orgasmic in places. Yes. Yes. Those two words have never been said in the word Santa and orgasmic. Oh, we just no, had the French kids, Santa right? The French kids are the only ones making toys. And the only ones that have names. Yeah, Yvette and Pierre, they're making a freaking doll, man. Right now, I'm painting her eyes in. The Chinese kids are just kind of, you know, beating dogs. and Yeah. They don't look happy about it, though. No, I feel like that was there's there's definitely like a paint me like one of your French girls moment here where there's some mm, there's possibly mm. some opium and consumption at play. This entire thing, it might be like a panopticon where the children jump as soon as the camera is on them. <laughs> like they know Santa's I, watching. I mean, he's always watching. He knows when you've been naughty. He knows when you've been nice. 
You know, so I think that explains the dogs. looks of fear, abject terror in some of their eyes. German boys and girls help Santa too. So we've got either the Von Traps or Kraftwerk. I'm not sure which one. The earlier Kraftwerk, I'm assuming. Oh, definitely. This is this is this is some man machine stuff. The couple of the kids had blenders. They're blenders. They're toy robots, I think. They're the, the uh, square <laughs> the square gray things. I thought they Maybe. were blenders. Well, that makes sense in a Kraftwerk universe. <laughs> it really does. Maybe, and I mean, that's a blender. That's, mar- that's a robot. I think okay, it is. so it is. Yeah, that's the back. She's holding the robot's arm. We're we're looking like the three girls on the right. There's two <laughs> yes. dogs, and the left girl has got a gray thing, right? Uh, that's a blend. A futurist analysis of this movie might be really useful at some point in time. What if? <laughs> What if this was a robot from making martinis and incorporated See? a blender? Okay. It's the I best like it. kind of robot. Oh, wait, it's no. One. Down, okay, the two girls on the right, blue skirt and red skirt, mm-hmm. down in front of their knees. Those are blenders. See? Yep. See, I'm right. I'm right. Another another trend I notice is the closer you get to America, to the Americas, the more guns come out. <gasps> You're absolutely right. Yes. Uh-huh. So I was not crazy about the blenders. It just wasn't no. the robot. There's not a whole lot of joy happening. No. And it's actually a trait of this entire movie. Wait, it's a he's distinct- tying a noose. He's tying a noose. <laughs> I was wondering about that. I guess it's for, he's going to, you know. That's how terrible this movie is. <laughs> One thing they got right, though, is the uh, United States kids, they're all wearing uh, cowboy hats. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Children from the USA. And they're the worst. Like, the other kids at least seem to have practiced, shown up for rehearsal. These kids clearly did. They just kind of swooped in, thought they could, they could wing it, just like all Americans. Good costumes, though. They do have the best costumes. Did you know there was a second verse to Mary Had a Little Lamb? There's like eight verses. What? It's, it's a, a song cycle. Yeah, it is actually. It's a, about going into the field to fight the fascists. <laughs> but, okay. No. The Mary Had a Little Lamb extended cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> Santa's holding a devil firework, which he lights. It starts to spin in sort of a hero's engine fashion. Then we immediately cut to pitch the devil dancing in a very, very colorful dance. Ladies and gentlemen, Billy Squire. <laughs> so this is our delightful, delightful hell sequence. Every single devil looks like Pitch. Um, it's like they're all beatniks. Well, you know, Pitch was hip in his day. <laughs> he looks like the lead singer from the Smithereens. I like that hell is like well choreographed. That makes me happy. Well, I mean, what else are they going to do all day? That's true. It doesn't seem to really point to hell. It's just a place where demons dance. I can't tell if those are carpet slippers or hooves. I think they're hooves. I think I think later I realized that they're hooves. Because on some of them, their little red toes stick out, but not all of them. Fun fact, if you close your eyes, you can't tell that the voice of Lucifer is not the voice of Santa Claus. <laughs> it's the same actor. Pitch and Merlin are the same actor. There are levels no. of dualism here. What? Well, not the not the actual actor in the film, but the American English actor, the voice actor. 
Oh, I did not catch that at all. Right, right, right. It's a, it's a certain level of removal from the actual cinematic material. So, in regards to pitch, yes, I was, uh, I think we'll call it 19 years old, so about 70 uh-huh. years ago. When, when you I, first had your first double crush. When I learned what a pumpkin skirt was. What is a pumpkin skirt? Well, Pitch is wearing a pumpkin skirt. Oh, the poofy thing. Yeah, that's, the that's the name of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a pumpkin skirt. Like, it, it's kind of like bell bottoms. It, every 150 years, it resurges. Um, there was a big Victorian pumpkin skirt thing. There was a big, uh, like, Medici family pumpkin skirt thing. And uh, 1997 pumpkin skirts came back. And I learned okay. all of this by insulting a pretty girl wearing a pumpkin skirt. When I was like, what the ever-loving hell is that? It's dumb. Which, yeah, I should have known better. Does Pitch carry it off? I mean, he seems to wear it pretty well. Uh, He's got the legs for it. We're coming to one of my favorite parts. Oh, let's keep going. I'm going to keep going. So, okay, we're in a department store. But I want to talk about hell. It's why we're here. Okay, let's talk about hell. hell. Department stores are hell. Oh. Let's, wait, let's talk about real hell, and then we'll talk about department store hell. Let's next. let's okay. skip forward just a bit. To, like they introduce little girl, they introduce Billy Fauntleroy, they introduce the three little boys, right? And we're like, Shana oh. yeah, Shana mm-hmm. and the three little boys are magically given rocks. Now, in the department store, there's an animatronic Santa, I think, who laughs, who laughs, laughs forever, creepy, laughs forever. at poverty, and that the three little boys throw rocks. They break the window of the department store. And then Santa gets beamed in the head with a rock. And then Space Santa gets beamed in the head with a rock. All like, Santas are one Santa. Are? Is that what it is? It's implied. Oh. I was like, I don't, I didn't understand how that rock magically traveled through time and space and the fifth dimension. So Santa is Legion? Um. Ooh. So the way Santa works in the, again, in the extended Santa Claus cinematic universe is that he can access all of the universe through the fifth dimension, which Merlin invented. Oh, not the band with Meryl McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. No, although I like them. Um, That's not really relevant. But uh, yeah, he, he has millions of villages that he controls so you're, you're concerned about child labor you can multiply it by an, a millions of institutions that he controls uh, he, he has a thing happening across the entire universe so to answer your question where did all these children come from obviously from our last episode these are the children Krampus took Oh, bad little children get stuffed in a sack and taken away to be slave labor for Santa. Pedro's a good little child. Now he is now. He's so he's so good. He's so sweet. He was Holgercito's not so good. We found out. Well, I mean, can you blame the child character for the actor? Actually, you can because fundamentally, Lupita is playing herself. I mean, the actress's name is Lupita. Pedro was an absolute little shite until Krampus <laughs> Krampus beat him with his birch twigs and he reformed. Okay. Well, there's some good there from Krampus. Yeah. The, yeah. So I you st- think that's why they all have that haunted look? Oh, yeah. It's social reform at its finest. We don't know. Krampus is holding the camera close to them. 
smile for the <laughs> just camera. Just standing there with the switch, like hitting it in the palm of his hand. <laughs> yes. I still want to talk about hell, though. Let's go to oh, hell. Okay. Uh, it's on topic for us. What? Have you read the Watchmen graphic novel? Yes, I am reading it right now. So the entire scene with Rorschach, uh, his his entry, his uh, origin story, is symmetrical. It like folds down the half, and that story is exactly in the middle of the series. The series is actually symmetrical based on Rorschach's story. So I think that the moment where Santa spins the little thing and it turns into pitch dancing is like a focal point of symmetry for these two scenes because hell is filled with people that dance for Lucifer's enjoyment. We don't know why they're there. It's kind of mindless. There are all these people in robes. We don't know why they're there, but they seem to be there purely to entertain Lucifer. And you reverse the film and you're in Santa land where all these children dancing for Santa. I think it's framed symmetrically because of, of this, because of that spinning moment there. Hmm. Also, I just realized the dream sequences with the giant boxes slash cryogenic chambers. Those are alarming. They're, they're in a circle similar to the, um, the hmm. robed figures in hell. Okay. I can see that. And maybe that's part of uh, Pitch's imagery because he manifests that dream. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. And a panopticon. It's very, it's also. True. Very, mm-hmm. very circular and round. Coming from the argument of this is a terrible movie. <laughs> I'm going to say, <laughs> says you, I'm going to say, what if there are only so many basic shapes and we don't have time to actually think about it? Like, what if there is no greater meaning in the Panopticon? It's just, look, this is terrible. Well, <laughs> I guess we cannot rule that out. I mean, your arguments are great. And like, in terms of thinking this, this is a cinematic masterpiece, let's frame it symmetrically. Let's have these beautiful segues. It's possible. They tried. But when you add to the symmetry that Lucifer and Santa are voiced by the same person. Were they voiced by the same person in Spanish? Now that creates a, a Jacques to read and deconstruction of the material that I don't think we can really go into. You're I'm, implying that. The author does not exist. What about Jacques Cousteau? What would he say? It is a great fish. (laughs) (laughs) So the hell scene, one thing I actually really appreciated, uh, cinematographically, cinema, yeah, that word. One thing I appreciated Mm -hmm. was the, like, they really did a good job with the scene. Like a lot of red light, a lot of in-camera work. Yeah, it seemed like there were like, limbs flailing in the background yeah. of people that were bound to the rock walls almost. Mm-hmm. The the fire was good. The red lights were good. This was a very hellish scene. And the dancing was, I mean, kind of like kind of Russian primitive style. It was aggressive dancing. It was a little scary. <gasps> yeah. And I have to say, Pitch has got some moves. I mean, mm-hmm. it was more coordinated than I thought it would be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's the word? Choreographed. Mm-hmm. Don't know what to make of the people in robes, except that we are explicitly in Hades, not necessarily hell. And Hades is the land of the Greek land of the dead, but it's generally speaking the land of the dead without necessarily being a punitive hell. So they could simply be the wraiths of the fallen and um, and lost, you know, endlessly in an endlessly gray world. So one thing that's worth calling out is the pitch claims that if he conquers Santa, he'll become the king of the world. And I think that might be a Gnostic Christianity call out. 
because in Gnostic Christianity, there are two gods. There's the, the true God, the, the prima mobile, um, the mover of the universe. And then there's the God that he, the God that created the world. Right. The younger is, God, the, the angry God. The, the demiurge it's called. And that's a, yeah, that is the angry God. If Pitch is claiming that if he conquers Santa, he will rule the world, that makes him the king of the world. And I think that does imply that he's tied into this Gnostic theology and is vying for control over the position of the god of Earth. Santa, I think, is from beyond the solar system and is therefore much more tied to the higher Gnostic god. But the younger angry god, he created the world and then he withdrew. Well, he stayed around for the Old Testament for quite some time because that's the fire and brimstone god. And the movie does call out uh, Jesus and God themselves, which are possibly the Demiurge, as separate entities from Santa. Yet Santa is repeatedly treated as a fully divine being in this film. So those people who have those stickers on the back of their trucks where Santa is praying in a manger, like they may actually be right? I, I mean, according to this film, yes. And this film is religious canon. Okay, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to rethink some things. <laughs> like, should you buy a truck and put stickers on the back? <laughs> you have my vote to do it. <laughs> but what if they have a peeing Calvin next to it? It depends what he's peeing on. Because right. uh, that's your statement. Like, this is Texas. I think so. We've that's got Russian. I think that's Russian Orthodox. Hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. And what if it's what if it's John Calvin? Ooh. Uh, hmm. We're going to need some nails. <laughs> I would like to start with one of the more interesting jump cuts from hell to what some people might consider hell on earth is a Christmas shopping window where we see all of the key characters in the movie coming together to watch a creepy animatronic Santa laugh and preside over a window full of toys to the amusement and horror of onlookers. So the first family that we see is rich boy Billy and his dad who looks suspiciously like Walt Disney. And this comes into play a little bit later, as, as we will see. And then we have the introduction of our archetype Lupita, the poor little girl and her very worried Les Mis level actress mom, her just desperation to own what appears to be a Scarlett O'Hara doll. I think this the doll she gets later is way more Scarlett O'Hara-y, so maybe she's gotten an upgrade. But unsettlingly, Santa, the animatronic Santa, is laughing at her poverty. And then, then, we get the introduction of Sha-na-na, as I like to call our, our three little comedic relief hooligans. Again, here's one of those moments where I feel like the movie is better than it needs to be. Like, there's a very seamless introduction of pitch into the into the scene. It took me a few minutes to kind of pick up on him in the diagonal of two women wearing red coats, and then there's pitch at the very center of them. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. I wanted to note, again, another really good, smooth cut that is comparable to the spinning devil that takes us directly to Pitch spinning in hell in his best Billy Squire Rock Me Tonight impersonation. We have the rock that hits Santa, the animatronic Santa, 
and then hits Santa back in his workshop. Like, what a great segue from Earth to Santa's magical workshop. So now we move back to another portrayal of children, (laughs) the incredibly efficient and potentially uh, underpaid minions, Pedro and his companions from Spain and Japan. And I just want to talk a little bit about this technology because, again, like with this movie, it's not only better than it needs to be, but it's also, they've made the most complicated choices possible. It's not only do we have a telescope, but the telescope, in order to work, shoots out a much smaller, less efficient telescope in the shape of an eyeball. And then we have the creepy Rocky Horror lips that intone where children are to be found in the world. It all just seems like a very Rube Goldberg-esque, fanciful version of useful surveillance technology. And it seems like much of Santa's workshop is highly inefficient and over-designed. And that carries into his employment of Merlin (laughs) and potentially our friend Vulcan, who I think is sorely underused and potentially very demoralized by his role in Santa's workshop. A big steaming bucket of prelude after this confusing and long, long introduction. At this point, we're about 12 minutes into the film, and the movie goes on to establish subplots at a breakneck speed so that Santa can rush down to Earth by the 50-minute marker or so. While in Santa's space castle, we get a taste of some of this strange magic, this weird biological futuristic tech that lets him see all, know all, spy on dreams, telescopes that extend out awkwardly and probes ending with an unblinking eye, uh, a computer that speaks through a pair of titanic fleshy lips, an ear on a radio dish. It's cartoonish and really literal, and he uses this to dream spy on the sad, unfulfilled dream life of Billy Fondleroy and the creepy, devil-inspired dreams of Lupita, really wants it all. Lupita, worth saying, gets quite a musical number, a full-scale fantasia that begins with her singing a little song about her doll. Let's play that now. Once I took her shopping, she got sick and then When I took her home, she got well again And then ends up with ten terrifying dancing dolls and a Job-like test of her moral conviction, which she does win. This segues into three other Christmas movie scenes the children writing letters to Santa to the consternation of the post office scene. Of course, the collection of the magic items from the senile wizard scene, which you probably remember from A Christmas Carol, uh, the version with Albert Finney. And the commissioning the magic key from the god Vulcan scene, which has been in so many Christmas movies that it's frankly becoming kind of trite. Next comes what's the money shot of any Santa movie, the takeoff scene. And you know, this isn't just any Christmas flight, though. The sign saying, Trans-Heavenly Airways, flight to Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn via the Milky Way is kind of a giveaway. More refugees from It's a Small World help feed and polish or sand down or buff the reindeer is the team of four wind-up reindeer. So we should probably talk about the terms of Santa's Earth passport, 
because of the power of the fifth dimension, he can visit every single child on Earth, and maybe every single child in the universe, on a single night. That's no problem. But if he stays too long, if he's on Earth at dawn, his deer turn to dust, or, quote, white reindeer powder, as he explains to Lupita later on. And because Santa himself is used to a diet of fluffy cloud ice cream, staying on Earth is a death sentence for him as well. It's really complicated being Santa. So the big guy winds up his reindeer and takes off, departing with those immortal words... Be off, my reindeer, and glide through the heavens as fast as you can go. May my palace of gold and crystal enjoy peace. And Jesus, the Son of God, join us on Earth so that we can all have joy and goodwill. On, my good reindeer! His space castle fade into distance behind him. There's a close call as he almost hits the moon. Again, it's really complicated being Santa. See, I this this is this is this is the scene that kind of makes me think that like I feel I feel that there's there's a bittersweet tone to this whole movie because this is Santa's end game. Like he's kind of getting forgetful. Everybody keeps trying to remind him of things. He's trusting Merlin who's equally forgetful. Poor Pedro is having to manage this whole thing. That's true. Yeah. And, I think I'm you with know, you. There's a sense that Santa's that this world is no longer ready for Santa. And I yeah. think we, we feel that a fair number of times. Mm-hmm. Like this is kind of Santa's Santa's last run and, you know, and he's kind of, he's ready. He's ready. Like just, you know, he's, he's like, okay, well, you know, maybe I won't go back. Maybe I don't make it back and that's okay. So it's kind of like, I feel like this is a little bit of Santa's swan song potentially. Hmm. So the kind of the fading facilities of the, these two people. Mm-hmm. Like this is sort of the secondhand lions kind of moment of the movie. I hope that means that Vulcan can take over because he looked pretty hot in that costume. He's already got a beard. (laughs) (laughs) I I do actually think Pedro probably, he he probably was at least interim, interim Santa before somebody, the the board replaced Santa with, you know, one of their cronies. So can he handle the stress? (laughs) I think that's what sent Paul Grisito over the edge. Oh, right. Downward spiral. Mm -hmm. I think, all that responsibility and no authority. Oh, it'll do. Mm. It'll do you in. So Merlin, it's worth stating again, invented the fifth dimension. Right. Mm-hmm. He did that. What's he done lately? Um, milk some flowers. <laughs> and then he does his little Tim Conway impersonation. <laughs> he's he's reaching into to harvest this butterfly wing. Mm-hmm. What's the word? Uh, ethically harvest this butterfly wing because it. I didn't realize those were butterflies. I thought maybe they were goldfish, because to me, oh. Merlin keeping goldfish in a birdcage is more magical than butterflies. Have you seen the Star Trek episode with Spock's brain? <gasps> yes. Uh-huh. Do you remember those liver things stuck to the ceiling? Yes. Uh huh. What? Just yes. like that. Just like no. that. Yeah. Like I, I had. I have the distinct memories of that. Like, for some reason, I could not get that out of my head. That episode. And I have to say, I do like this kind of HR puffin stuff, giant flower thing, too. It's a big cartoony world, and that's appealing. Mm-hmm. I also like they play this very child, childlike music with Merlin, which also sort of is a little heartbreaking. You know, like he's becoming a child again. Like his life's like he's circling back. Well, okay. So Merlin, and we're talking like actual Merlin, Merlin lived backwards, right? Right. So what we're seeing is the very beginnings of Merlin. 
Oh. So maybe he learns more. And he's going to learn more and get younger. And in a couple hundred years, you know, give birth on give. No, let's not say those words. So is he like Billy, Billy Buttons? Yes. Is that- yeah. <laughs> Billy Buttons is Merlin. What? I, I don't have that reference. <laughs> There's a movie, which I've never seen because I hate movies and joy and fun. Where, who is it? Is it it's not Tom Hanks. It's um, Brad Pitt, it's Brad Pitt, right? It's Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. Billy Buttons comes into this world as an old man. And then oh. over the course of the story of the movie, over the, over the next 93 minutes, becomes younger and younger and younger. And because Hollywood, there's drama and love and stuff. The cauldron that Merlin carries in this scene, it's kind of a little round thing that he shuffles around with. That cauldron is made of uranium and plutonium. All right. So is it, can he lift it? I mean, can Merlin make a cauldron that he cannot lift? Well, he, he can lift that one. I, so I, I see what you did there at the whole, can you, <laughs> can you do a thing you cannot do? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love that gag. Which strangely segues back into the mushroom cloud chest hair of Vulcan himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just common atomic chest hair. New life goals. Hashtag atomic chest hair. So, Jaman, before we start, would you set the scene for us? All right, so Santa is about to walk into the blacksmith, where he has the keymaker making a key in a flaming forge with coals and fire and a soup kettle for some reason, and he gives him the key. <laughs> Which I think does ally Santa with the highest possible power in the Greek pantheon, that would be Jupiter Zeus. Oh, I thought you meant soup eater. Sorry, no, I, I get you right. And <laughs> no, that's Santa's gang. Can you press play now? Yeah, let's press play. Okay. So the keymaker... In this, in this dub, but in original, this guy isn't just a keymaker, he's Vulcan. This is the god of volcanoes smashing stuff in hot flames. Like, look, look, let's take the stuff and make it hot and smash it, right? I'm kind of agreeing with hot. Right. His chest, his chest is impressive. That is, that is 70s chest he's got there. Besides having the same beard and the same chest, but not the same muscles, TV Tropes describes this as the carpet of virility. this man is tough and you know it because he's shaggy but he never occurs again though he just we we summon up a god and then he wanders off screen that doesn't mean he's not virile (laughs) somewhere in the background he's studly he brushed look at it he brushed it that chest hair has been quaffed is it real though let's go back let's go back and pause it's been brushed We'll, we'll include um, an image of this in the show notes, I suspect. Yeah, but you don't want to actually watch this movie. I disagree on that thesis, but nevertheless. This scene saddened me greatly because it reminded me of Burt Reynolds in his later years where he's sort of just a shadow of his former self. And so we have this, you know, we have Vulcan here. He's clearly like formerly very muscular starting to kind of sag a little bit and he's kind of cowed by Santa and all of his powers are reduced to making this key. Once a year, he makes a key to open all of the doors in the world. We don't know that. If you look back in the far distance of the shot, you'll see that there's bent metal rods that could be Zeus's lightning bolts. So you think he has a side gig? Like when, you know, I think Santa is God. I've said that repeatedly throughout this film. I think there's a lot of evidence for it. In this case, Santa may be occupying the role of Zeus. 
He's got the beard for it. He's a universal god, king of the heavens. I don't think that Hephaestus has necessarily fallen in station here. All right. Uh, I just get a wave of sadness from this. And that maybe the chest hairs are a transplant to kind of like regain some lost youth somewhere. Oh, that is sad. Mm-hmm. So before we talk about the pants pulled so high, they're over the belly button. See, that's another sign of like trying to suck it in, you know? Can we get a consensus? Real or fake? Oh, fake. Really? It has to be fake. Well, I don't know. I mean, it just looks so like he just kind of rolled in hair. Like he got like he some like he got some some soup on him or something and then just like found some hair to roll. <laughs> I'm thinking it's probably a sprayed layer over some very fine native chest hair. But it's brushed. Well, some people do that. Am I gonna have to take but my it shirt kind of off? It makes a face. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's a it's another face. It's a very sad face. It's like a sad puppy face. See, I saw a mushroom cloud. Oh, the atomic. So maybe it's an atomic cloud. Oh, yeah. Which mm. adds a whole other layer to this. That's how hot my forge is. (laughs) (laughs) I want to move ahead to dream sequences here because I feel like there's a lot going on there as well. And we move from surveillance to our little rich kid's family and his dream, little Billy's dream, that appears to Santa in what seems to be a flavorless jello mold. So we're watching the little rich boy's dream. And we have these two large gift boxes that, given that his dad looks like Walt Disney, I'm assuming are cryogenic chambers. And this, there's Walt Disney. And... His very well-preserved mother. Perhaps it's all the alcohol they drank that helped with their cryogenic preservation. But this is just heartbreaking. Because it's clear that they actually really do love their son, but for whatever reason, they just don't understand how to have a son or to have a child of any, of any sort. And we learn that later as they are served the cocktail of remembrance by the mysterious faceless waiter that they both seem to slightly recall. So we're going to move ahead to the little girl's dream, Lupita's dream. And oh, first a little note about the sort of interesting Willy Wonka land of Lupita's family home. It's very much like the Buckets hovel in Willy Wonka. And again, I'm perplexed by appliances being featured in this. I guess maybe it's the Sears connection, but we have a watering can and a vacuum cleaner on the wall and I'm surprised we don't have one of the German kids' blenders there, but, you know, maybe if they pray a little bit more. So we watched Lupita go to sleep, and her dream, she has even more boxes that, again, I assume are cryogenic chambers, because the dolls that come out to me look like they were made by Anatoly Muscovin, and I'm not going to explain much about that here, but uh, please do not work look that up on your work computer. But I would say, like, again, to Jacob's point, that our actress Lapita is either a genius or a naive, but she does not seem to react very strongly to these terrifying corpse dolls that are questioning her integrity and worldview. Um, it just may be that she's very, very tired. I would also like to say that I feel like Lupita is a very interesting anti-Sally Brown because 
she too has this sort of monotone delivery, yet she lacks the capitalist message. In fact, she's fairly anti-capitalist, and I really would like to know, you know, what revolution she went on to, to lead in her future. Cutting into the story here to say how much I love Lupita and how weirdly strong she is as a character. She does come across as a bit wooden, although I would like to know how many takes the director had to call for for this dream sequence here. I mean, she's on a foggy set surrounded by some really scary dancing dolls, and she looks bored, totally disinterested. But try comparing that to any other four-year-old you've met. She should be screaming right now. But the conviction that Lupita shows in this scene takes me back to my catechism and baptism. It's that kind of call-and-response ritual. Her answers are pat and solid and kind of repetitive, but so is the Catholic baptism. Dost thou renounce Satan and all his works? I do. Do you believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth? I do. Do you believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting? I do. Compared to Lupita's action here, that ritual is just play-acting. Lupita is arguing with the devil, and she's standing her ground. Why don't you steal that doll? She could be yours. No. You know that stealing is bad, and I want to be good. But you must learn to steal. No. You know stealing is bad, and I want to be good. We dolls don't like good little girls. No, to steal is evil, and I don't want to be evil. This goes on for like six or seven variations, and she may be lost or jaded or confused or just possibly stoned, but she is not a weak character, because when the devil's advocate presents a case, she responds with authority. Go, Lupita. The power of this scene may be a little lost if you haven't stood in front of an entire congregation and emphatically renounced Satan and all his works, but if you have, I think you'll feel an echo of that ritual in Lupita's declaration of good as she sees it. On Earth, the four or six plot lines, Lupita, Billy Fondleroy, Shanana, Pitch's Pranks, Santa's Duties, come together in a series of train wrecks and awkward dialogue. Billy's parents leave him on Christmas Eve, and if he gets lonely, he can maybe practice the piano or something. Shanana plans to kidnap the Santa Claus, tie him in a sack, bind him into slavery, and never give him back. Lupita wants a doll, Lupita won't get a doll. Pitch's opening salvo is to push a chimney five feet to the left, which is very cunning. Santa gets him back a little later by firing a toy rocket at his butt. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. There's a touching, or maybe just weird, scene where Santa allows Billy Fondleroy to have a dream about him in which he sees Santa in his full glory. So I guess he doesn't go blind in real life, maybe? Taking pity on the poor, tousle-haired heir to millions, Santa drops in on his parents at a very fancy restaurant with some really weird lost-in-translation dialogue. That's a strange cocktail, isn't it? It's the cocktail of remembrance which only I can prepare. Whoever drinks it will think of that which is most dear and which at times, for some unknown reason, we seem to forget. That's a beautiful thought. Perhaps we need a reminder. Very possibly we've forgotten someone we love. Love can be expressed in many ways, but the truest love is that which we give without expecting anything in return. The greatest reward for those who love sincerely is love itself. So drink my cocktail and you will become aware of that love which is closest to your hearts. And those without love? They couldn't drink this cocktail as it would burn their throats. And isn't that just the true meaning of Christmas, really? So pause the film for a second, or at least pause the narration of the film. Because I think it's worth asking, what the hell is Santa Claus? I think he may be God. Actually, I think he may be something much bigger than God, because compared to the K. Gordon Murray extended cinematic universe, the Marvel movie continuity is a bit crap. Right now, we've paused the video on Santa leaving his village for his one night on Earth. It's a wide shot, 
There are three castles floating in space. For those of us raised on Rankin-Bass Christmas specials, you're probably thinking, yeah, that's his workshop somewhere over the North Pole, sure. But no. We've been inside one of several workshops and offices, each on its own moon, somewhere past Jupiter. And assuming Murray's other Santa sequence films are canon and not apocrypha, I'm referring to Santa's Enchanted Village, Santa Claus and His Helpers, and Santa's Magic Kingdom, this is one of millions of villages, because Santa's power extends over the entire universe. And when you multiply that out, that is an awful lot of child labor. In one of Pitch's darker moments, he claims that if he can get rid of Santa, he'll take over as ruler of the world. It's ambiguous whether he will win this title from Santa or be elevated to that title by Lucifer. Uh, Satanology 101, the king of the world is Satan. It's also Jesus, sometimes, in the sense that Jesus is the king of creation. But specifically, king of the corrupt and corruptible dirt ball that is the mortal world, that is one of the devil's many names. There is one other divine power that has held that title in the past, the god Yahweh, the bearded wrathful thunderer of the Old Testament. So hear me out. This is the heart of the Gnostic view of the Creator, which you may have experienced if you watched the Matrix trilogy. The world is corrupt. We know that. It has murder hornets, plague, Kardashians, and infomercials. God, and this is literally an article of faith, is perfect. But there is something of a discrepancy here. Uh, to quote Monty Python, All things dull and ugly, all creatures short and squat, all things rude and nasty, the Lord God made the lot. Anything that is produced, this world cannot be pure or perfect. And so we have the angry, kind of manic-depressive creator of the world, who the Gnostics named the Demiurge, and a higher-level being who created the creator, who is, like Keanu Reeves, simply called the One. For Gnostics, true knowing comes from the awareness of this higher level of creation. There's an echo of this both in Murray's Santa Claus and in Psalm 82, where the true God presides over an assembly of gods and passes judgment on them. This God is the greatest of a broad category of numinous beings, the Elohim construction that is both the name of God and something like a species containing the One, Yahweh, other gods, Jesus, possibly the serpent of the Garden of Eden, demons, and even the spirits of the dead. In the Old Testament, God cannot be seen. No man may look upon his face and live. Santa, as well, cannot be seen, although he does allow Billy Fondleroy to look upon him in his dreams. Pitch is invisible to mortals. Santa may or may not be invisible. The film is inconsistent here. Now, Pitch is engaged in a war with Santa, and the winner will become king of the world. But, as important as his activities here on Earth are tonight, Santa's reach spans the entire universe. His home is beyond Jupiter. In the medieval Earth-centric model of the solar system, he would be the prima mobile, the animating force of the celestial realm beyond the planets. Compared to the full span of Santa's influence and power, made possible by his access to the fifth dimension, which Merlin invented, the title of King of the World seems less consequential than children fighting in a sandbox. Is the Santa of K. Gordon Murray's Christmas world God? No. But only because there are things much, much bigger than God. I just want to point out some interesting things. <laughs> like, the whole letter-writing montage to me was both delightful and confusing, but I also enjoy the fact that once all these letters for Santa Claus come into the post postal office, they seem perplexed as if this does not happen every single year. And again, that tone kind of carries through the whole movie because Santa seems to forget every single year what he's supposed to do, what he's supposed to take with him, what tools he uses. And every year, Merlin seems to reinvent the same gimmicks for Santa Claus to use during his journey on Earth. And it's almost like if James Bond had suffered a head injury and every single movie they had to 
reinvent every single Bond gadget and every single time, like Q just counted on his salary, depending on him just pulling the same inventions out of storage every single time. I do, I do think there are some interesting layers in here that are very different from your traditional American holiday movie because there is a question it does question capitalism quite effectively in a in a weird way and it does get at the sense of loss that a lot of people feel at Christmas when you do not have what you think other people have and you wish for things that other people have. And I guess that's the greatest weight of the letter writing montage and of little Billy's story. And also just sort of making assumptions about somebody's level of pain based on their level of privilege. You know, we're not, we're not able to assess that effectively in other people. And I do say, like, I just love the aesthetic of this movie. I love everything about it. I really would like to live in this world. Not necessarily in Santa's workshop, but in these fab- the fabulous apartment and house that we see in Santa and Pitch's early as little scraps. So things start to devolve into their chaotic, loud climax. Sean and us pranks are foiled by some sort of fireball out of space, and I do not know what that is about. Pitch the Devil works overtime in a little cul-de-sac community, turning several households, the police and the fire department, against Santa. The big guy is chased up a tree by a dog. It's almost dawn. Lupita still doesn't have her doll. And when the sun comes up... Your reindeer will turn into powder. You will starve to death. And I will rule the earth. (laughs) Basically, that's the end of Santa. The suspense is terrible, I'm told. Really, Pitch wins this round, and if there was any justice in the world, Pitch would be the king of it now. But everything works out somehow, which is just about how every Christmas ends up, at least at my house. Santa makes a second-to-last-minute escape, a last-minute gift delivery, Lupita gets her doll, and everybody lives happily ever after for a year. Maybe, except Lupita, I'm not sure, but at least she gets a doll. It's sort of a collapsed souffle of an ending, but it still tasted good, and there was a nice brandy sauce. Can I say one thing? Please. I really can't (laughs) stop you. (laughs) please try why does pitch call the dog daddy (laughs) um right when i was taking a drink i i think he's saying dante (laughs) are you sure about that no i'm not but the dog's name is dante and if you call a dog your daddy (laughs) i I went back and i listened (laughs) seven times and each time it was different so i yeah just like there are moments like that, like also where Santa is yelling to Merlin. Yes. Very strange emphasis there. <laughs> I think this scene really does show that Santa is no longer in a world he understands. It's like the entire world is turning against him here. The dog's angry at him. The people are angry at him. They have guns. He's lost the souls of Shanana at this point. Those three little boys are gone. <laughs> uh, he, he's given up on them entirely. I think that, yeah, this is showing that Santa is, he's out of his era now. He's, he's doing some good, but he's fighting against a world that just does not seem to want him here. And so, what good is he doing? Let's, let's take a look. Let's press play. So yeah, he's facing angry suburbanites, angry dogs. It's just a really crazy breakdown of reality for him. It has not gone his way. Yeah, is this actually happening to Santa? It could be all <laughs> metaphorical. I mean, I think what we've learned is that Pitch is much more capable of dealing with this world than Santa is. 
Oh yeah, pitches. Yeah, this this is wait. Well, this but, is a cakewalk for him. So let's go back all the way to the very beginning when pitch. Oh God, no. When pitch is like, <laughs> I'm going to make this difficult for Santa. I'm going to move the chimney. <laughs> right. He's actually sort of upped his game while Santa's failing. I mean, we say that Santa. You said that Santa's not a good guy, but he is willing to risk his own existence to give Lupita the doll that she wants. So here's a question. Yes. Given the family circumstances. Poor. Poor. Dad comes home at like three in the morning. He's been out looking for a job in the middle of the night. At three at like 5 a.m. on Christmas night. So maybe he's not the best. He's, he's a little bit of a, a paw otter, let's say. I question you know, his job of, hunting strategy. Yes. Santa gives them a doll. He yes. doesn't leave them food, a job or health care. I have an Is answer. Is he such for, a good guy? I have an answer for you. It's the final co- statement of the movie, the, the final message. This is not a movie about rewarding good or bad. It's a movie about faith. And in giving the child her doll, he helps her believe in the miracle of Christmas. But can you eat? Yeah, that? because if you have joy in your heart, you don't need to eat. Right, right. You're, you're assuming that the physical body is more important than the soul. I mean, Willy Wonka didn't. <laughs> yes, there. Cabbage soup? We can't afford. That's true. There's definitely a bucket aesthetic. Yeah. A bucket family aesthetic happening here. I'm thinking like Lupita Cratchit. <laughs> Lupita Cratchit. So I have a question. Is white reindeer powder some kind of euphemism? Oh, it has to be. Yeah. It has to be. Uh-huh. Yeah, like I think, you know, some go fast. <laughs> it really is an ambiguous ending though you uh you didn't pay for quality miracles here the father still doesn't have a job they still don't have any money lupita does have a very nice doll maybe they can sell the doll maybe they can mm-hmm. sell the white reindeer powder but here's another question going back to the job hunting at three in the morning mom is a seamstress aka euphemism maybe she could have made a doll yeah, aka euphemism <laughs> No, that's dark, guys. But look, when Lupita touches the doll, the mother crosses herself. This is a moment of faith for the family. And I think that's that's more important than the question of where the doll comes from. This is the Christmas miracle is belief. And so the closing frame of the movie is this card that says, blessed are those who believe for they shall see God. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The doll itself is stupid, but the moment of touching the divine is very important. You're not wrong. I have another question. <laughs> My other question is, why a Scarlett O'Hara doll? I mean, that's a whole other can of worms. Was it? It's totally a Scarlett O'Hara doll. This movie. Boy. Uh, where to begin? Let's not talk about what this movie isn't. Let's talk about what this movie is. Santa Claus was a, it was a Mexican production. It was released in Mexico for Mexicans, and I don't know how it came here, but I didn't realize this, but according to, air quotes, the internet, this was also an educational film. Like, we're introducing this culture to Santa Claus, who didn't have Santa Claus up until 1950, whenever, when this was released. So if we didn't have Santa Claus, who brought the presents? Like, did we still have Christmas? Yes, we had Christmas. The wise men brought the Christmas. Like, man, 
cool. And then we got Santa Claus. So being Mexican, like the culture, like we have, you know, uh, the Virgin Mary, Santa Maria. We have got Santa Muerte. We've got Santo Domingo, right? There's a Saint Sunday. No, it's actually Saint Dominic. So when you really Santa Claus, like, wait a second. How does this, like, what, how was this received? Was this a new saint that we, like, like candles to? Like, how was he perceived, this big, fat, jolly man who gives presents? It's kind of a rough introduction. This is the part where I don't go off about capitalism ruining holidays. This movie was actually well-received. People liked it. People watched it. It was, it was a, for years, it was a regular Christmas tradition. Oh, yay, Christmas is here. Time to watch Santa Claus versus the devil. And we gather around as a family and we eat it. The 50s were weird, man. And I realize, like, if, if we compare this to other Christmas movies, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Home Alone, Die Hard. I don't know if Star Wars counts as a Christmas movie or not. There's, there's arguments on, air quotes, the internet. Um, the Grinch. And if you look at this, I dare you to go back and watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's going to be terrible. Like, we all loved it back in, what, the 80s, because we were dumb and in the 80s and stuff, and we're like, oh, this is the funniest thing ever, it's so relatable, family. If you watch it now, it hasn't aged. Home Alone, good God, like, as soon as that thing goes royalty-free, MST3K is going to do Home Alone. I kid you not. It's terrible. Die Hard, uh, there's, there's still a soft place in my soft head for Die Hard, but I probably wouldn't watch it if I had to. Even the Grinch, me, Jamin, loves the Grinch. Like, childhood hero, I would never watch it. It hasn't aged again. There's a Thomas J. Wolfe novel called You Can't Go Home Again, and it's true. You you can't. You can't relive your childhood. I've never read the book, but one of my great hobbies is quoting books I've never read. So this movie, in the time, at the time, had some really amazing special effects. It was really high budget. Like, it was kind of well done if you look at it, and I don't recommend you do. And going back to the whole MST3K thing, they they hit this movie and they, you know, did it. But honestly, this movie didn't really deserve that. It wasn't a terrible movie. That one movie with the Manos in the Hands of Fate, where the guy literally wore his costume backwards, because I don't know if he couldn't figure it out, it was intentional. That was a terrible movie. This movie was a really, really well-done movie, a lot of budget, and it just, it was good in the 50s. And I've been a lot of places. I've been around the world twice, but I've never been to the 50s. And I realize now I'm okay with never going there. It's just, it's weird. And in 20, 30 years, I'll be like, man, 2020 was super weird. Like, 2020 didn't age well. I mean, to be fair, 2020, well... Uh, cue dumpster fire quote. So I realize, having said this, this movie is worthy of love and the people have loved it. And it's not my fault. And it, well, it's not even the movie's fault because there is no fault. There's no one to blame. It's not me. It's not you. We're, we're from different worlds. And that doesn't mean I can't love something. And that doesn't mean that you can't be loved. But you and I, movie, we're not meant to be. And that's okay. So, what about this movie? What about it? You didn't mention the knob blowing. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> One more time? <laughs> when Pitch is blowing that red oh knob. Okay. 
Oh, okay. I was going to say you have so, my attention. But. Again, this movie was made in 1959 when when special effects were non-existent. That was bloody genius. Like, oh, here I am. I'm going to be camp. I'm going to go, ooh, hootsie tootsie tootsie. And I'm going and shine a red light on the door. It worked. Like, of everything negative I have to say about this film, the knob blowing was exquisite. Cinematic genius. I have to say that the the phone the phone gag with the with the two sleeping people. Oh that's yeah, some, that's some Bob Newhart level comedy <laughs> performance there. Bob Newhart, yes. I wonder what would happen if you played Dark Side of the Moon over the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I promise, gentlemen, you're safe from any Christmas specials for another 364 days. Okay. <laughs> Are there any Valentine's Day movies? About hell? All of them. I hate Valentine's Day, too. I'm buying you pearls for Valentine's oh. Day. <laughs> just just because we both hate it and... Take that, ha! Huh. I want I want them to come on like to be worn by a bear. Like they only matter if if they are presented on a bear, an allegorical bear, <laughs> because Vulcan's chest hair. He's a, yeah, just uh, mm-hmm, uh-huh. mm-hmm. let's do it, please. I feel like I want to I want to cut here, so. Based on your personal preference, Merry Christmas or Bah Humbug. Bah Humbug. And we'll see you in hell. Bye. Thank you.